11 verses of Peter's second letter. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, our selection from the canons of Dort... This is a, an extremely logical and well-ordered confession. We've studied a beautiful definition of what election is and of what election is not based upon. We've seen that election is unchangeable and that it brings us great assurance. But this evening we look at two articles that explain to us, well, the first one, how we're to respond to this election. And then the second one, how we're to build up one another, encourage one another, teach one another these truths. So Article 13 tells us in their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God, to adore the fathomless depth of His mercies, to cleanse themselves, and to give fervent love in return to Him who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing His commandments or carnally self-assured. By God's just judgment, this does usually, usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen. Just as by God's wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election has been proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself, and the apostles in the Old and New Testament times, and has subsequently been committed to writing 
in, to writing in the Holy Scriptures, so also today in God's church, for which it was specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth with a spirit of discretion, in a godly and holy manner, at the appropriate time and place, without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. This must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the lively comfort of His people. Amen. Congregation of God, beloved in Christ. One of the many mistakes of youth is to speak all that is on one's mind without careful consideration. One of the pieces of wisdom that we learn as we grow older is that some things are better left unspoken, but that's a difficult truth to learn. It is of the nature of youth, it is of the nature of immaturity, to speak everything one has on one's mind and to speak it without thinking. But that's not wise. In fact, that can be hurtful and dangerous. For instance, your friend confides in you a struggle that he's having with sin. And at first, you're, you're stunned. You never saw that struggle in him before. You never considered that sin yourself. But then, that weighs on you. You, you ponder it in your mind. And then another friend really wrestles with and, and explains to you that he's really feeling you know, uh, worthless in his walk before the Lord. And you're tempted to share what the other friend said so that he'll know that he's not alone. But doing so would break that first friend's confidence. To not speak there is the right thing to do. Or, it's Christmas. Very soon, many of you will unwrap gifts. Perhaps you already have. And man, that can be so exciting, right kids? You think about the things that you, you hope might be in that box, the things that, the possibilities of what might be there. And sometimes, boy, you open that gift and you think, wow, that is, that's even better than I had hoped for. And other times, it's underwear. And the temptation is to express your disappointment. But wisdom and maturity calls us to look not at the thing that was given, but the spirit with which it was given, the love with which it was given, and to respond not to the gift, but to the thing given. That's a, a demand for maturity. Not only in what we speak, but in how we speak it. Because words are not harmless. Words convey ideas and beliefs that can deeply impact the heart. Words can soothe and bring healing, and they can also hurt in ways that will never heal. And that applies uniquely to the truths God reveals in His Word, including this decree of election we've been considering. There are some who claim that it is never appropriate to speak about election, to teach about election. They see no potential benefits to the doctrine. What they do see is that a lot of people disagree about a lot of the details, 
And that some people, they look at this doctrine and they misuse it in ways that lead them to feel excused in living a carnal life or in looking down on others or in not evangelizing. They see no upside in teaching that. They think, you know what, let's just teach the gospel. Let's just call people to trust in Christ. And this whole talk about election, all this talk about foreknowledge and predestination, that is not something we need to teach in the church, much less beyond it. If you must study it in seminary, that's fine, but keep it there. Whereas others take the exact opposite approach. Election is all they talk about. Election informs the way they understand the covenant and who they regard as being in the covenant. Election informs how they do evangelism or whether they do evangelism or whether they count leaving the door of the church open is in fact evangelism for those who are elect. And they take it the other way where all they talk about is election and they do so in a way that is in fact harmful. And so our selection this evening, it calls us to wrestle with our calling concerning this doctrine. Shall we speak it? And if so, in what way? And when it is spoken, how shall we respond to that teaching? How shall we answer those decrees. This is not an academic matter. It should not be an academic matter because, folks, when God, when God inspired these 66 books that we call the Bible, He did so for His beloved children. There's nothing in this Bible that we don't need. Every bit of it was given for our good, and now it falls to us to use it in a way that builds us and our brothers and sisters up drawing us closer to godliness and using it to glorify God. So how do we do that with regard to this truth, all these truths surrounding election that we've been studying? And what we see when we consider that question is that the Lord has given this doctrine and these teachings as a gift to His church. The Lord gives His church the gift of understanding his election decree. Now as we consider that theme about how he's given this as a gift, we're going to consider it in the reverse order of what we just read in the canons. We'll look first at the truth we found in article 14 which describes the giving of the gift and why election must be taught in, in the church among God's people because we need to know that first of all. We need to settle the question of shall we speak it and if so how? But then we go back to Article 13 and say, well, how do we receive it? How do we receive that gift in a way that honors God? So first then we look at giving the gift. Why election must be taught among God's people, that's our first point. Now, in considering the question of whether, whether we are to teach this doctrine, and that is a live question in the church in America, by the way. The church in which I grew up, I never heard the doctrine of election. That never is a strong word. The few times I heard someone trot out passages like Revelation 8, 28 through 30 or Ephesians chapter 1, it was quickly shut down with the claim that 
God is infinite, we are finite, we are not equipped to understand the truths that are there revealed. Thereby essentially gluing those pages shut, saying that is not for us. Well, years ago I learned a helpful way of approaching the Bible in terms of ethics, in terms of what we are to do. And this is in a sense a question of ethics. What I learned was that the Bible teaches us about ethics in at least four ways. It teaches us as a guide, a guard, a compass, and an example. It teaches us as a guide by giving us positive commands of what we are to do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are positive commands. Do these things. It also teaches us as a guard using negative commands to teach us what not to do. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony. These are things that we're not to do. A guide, a guard, and a compass. A compass doesn't tell you where to go. It gives you a general direction, doesn't it? Well, the the Bible often gives us general directions. The Bible doesn't tell me whether I should buy a new car every year. But it does teach me principles of stewardship that urge me to treat the money and the resources and the things that I have as gifts from God, possessions to be used in service to Him. Right? That's a, a compass. And then examples. The Bible gives us both positive and negative examples of how to act, how not to act. So it is with this concept of teaching election. The Bible clearly guides us positively to teach about election in the passage we just read. Throughout this passage, we're told to embrace the knowledge of our personal salvation. And we've seen already that only those and all of those are saved who are elect. In fact, Peter even goes so far as to say, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election thereby telling us that we should know what election is and whether we're among those who are elect. So positively, the Bible shows us that we should be teaching at least something about this doctrine of election. Meanwhile, it guards us against the folly of ignoring this truth. For example, in Hebrews 6, in Hebrews 6, the apostle warns against repeatedly backsliding and repenting. Turning to Christ, then falling away, only to repeat that turning as a cycle, testifies that the person doesn't really believe God's promises, that when he calls someone, he holds them, and he continues to use them and to transform them and to change them into bearers of Christ's image. We must guard against ignoring those promises that are bound up with election. The compass of Scripture supports that. From start to finish, God's Word highlights the grace of God in saving sinners in the whole process, not just in setting the gospel before them and allowing them to choose, but in selecting those who would come from before the start of time. I mean, think of Ephesians 1, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. And it emphasizes, as a matter of fact, that sets the tone for the whole of Ephesians, which is an eminently practical book about how we are to live as Christians. But it starts with the knowledge of God's 
choosing and God's sovereign working in the lives of those whom he has chosen. So the compass of Scripture shows us we need this knowledge in order to live the life God would have us live. And finally, the Bible is filled with examples of God's servants doing precisely that. Last week, from Luke 10, we saw how Jesus taught his disciples that they could know that their names were written in heaven. That is, that they are among the elect. And we saw how he taught in John 6 and in John 10 that God has elected, God has set apart as his own those who would come to him. Same thing in the Old Testament. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And we find that same kind of thing throughout Deuteronomy, as we saw even this morning, and throughout the prophets as well. So the testimony of Scripture is clear, brothers and sisters, that election must be taught among God's people. The question is how? I said at the start, there is a time for speaking and there's a time for keeping our mouths shut. And so it is with the doctrine of election. For those within the church, this doctrine is an absolutely beautiful truth. It is a reminder of how firmly we stand as those chosen by God. It's a calling to confess God as the one who is sovereign, who was in charge of absolutely every detail of how we got saved. But outside the church, this doctrine can be an offense, can be an unnecessary stumbling block. Consider the approach of the Apostle Paul. He speaks powerfully in, for instance, Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. And a number of other places, he speaks powerfully about this doctrine of election. But to whom does he speak that? He speaks that to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae. In the pulpit and in the homes of confessing Christians, Paul taught this doctrine with boldness and uh, applied it with confidence. But we don't find Paul speaking about election to the crowds of Gentiles or in the marketplace. The only time we find him teaching of it in public is when he's addressing Jews who knew the scriptures of Israel, who confessed the only true God. You see, that's the prerequisite for using this doctrine, for understanding this doctrine aright. We have to know who God is, that he is the sovereign and holy and altogether good one. We have to know who we are, that we deserve God's just wrath. And we need to understand that it is entirely gracious when God calls even one to himself. Apart from that knowledge, we're not really equipped to understand this doctrine. So that means that we need, we need to proclaim, to teach this doctrine in the church. Here where we confess together the righteous, holy, and gracious character of God. Here, where we together confess our sin and acknowledge our unworthiness. Here, where we have the foundation we need for rightly understanding these truths. Here, the teaching of election is absolutely essential. But downtown, or in the marketplace, or at the university, where they don't understand God, where, they, where many of them build their reputation on denying God, there we don't bring such doctrines that are stake, such doctrines that are meaty and meant for those who are mature. Instead, we bring milk, which is meant for the spiritual infants. There 
we go back to the basics of God's creative power in establishing the world and Adam's fall and man's unworthiness and our need for a Redeemer and what that Redeemer looks like. That's the milk. That's the basic doctrine that is needed out there in the world where they don't have that foundation. So we must proclaim it in the church. We ought not to let it be a distraction in the world. We also need to take care how we proclaim election. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul warns about those who devote themselves to controversies and vain discussions. Meanwhile, Moses warns in Deuteronomy 29 that we ought not to peer into that which God has hidden. Well, election is one of those doctrines that lends itself to that. Some things about election God has revealed oh so clearly, like that it exists and that it undergirds our salvation. But some things like who outside of myself is or is not elect or How many within the covenant are elect? He hasn't revealed that. He hasn't intended for us to delve into that. And so we need to be careful that we don't go beyond what God's word has revealed. We need to be aware of our attitude concerning election in two ways. On the one hand, we need to avoid the attitude of detachment. There is a temptation that we encounter. I'm thankful I've not seen it much here. But it's a temptation for us in the Reformed churches. Whenever we delve into those doctrines that are difficult, like election, they're fascinating doctrines. We start delving into the proof texts and the system and the the theologians and their various views. And pretty soon it becomes a fascinating puzzle to us and nothing more. It moves us no more than the various theorems we learned when we were studying uh, geometry. It fills us with no more joy or wonder than the Pythagorean theorem or the second law of thermodynamics. But brothers and sisters, election is a truth that must never fail to leave us in awe. We must never take lightly this truth that God has looked upon the whole of ruined mankind and chosen to save some for himself. I mean, think of it. All of humanity deserved God's wrath, deserved to be wiped out. And God, knowing that they would do it before it ever happened, before Adam took one bite of that forbidden fruit, God said, but I am going to deliver for myself a remnant. They won't deserve it at all. I'm going to do absolutely every last bit of the saving that they need done. I'm even going to give them the faith by which they're joined to the Redeemer. I'm going to be responsible for every little bit of it. How can we hear that and not fall to our knees in wonder? When we proclaim this glorious doctrine, we must never allow it to become simply a matter of mere facts. Always, we must remember the significance of that which we teach. Always, we must allow our hearts to be moved by it. Nor should we take this doctrine lightly. The truth of election can never be a matter of indifference to us. We must believe it, teach it, defend it passionately. 
Because this doctrine reveals the just yet gracious character of our God. How he could be both just and the justifier of those who need salvation. That's an amazing truth about God. It must lead us to worship. We can't just, we can't just allow it to be uh, something we confess. And we must speak this truth. We must teach this truth very intentionally for the proper purposes. Article 14 of our canons concludes by mentioning the two purposes for which it must be taught. And it's essential we understand that. First, we are called to proclaim this truth for the glory of God's most holy name. Paul speaks about election at great length in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And at the conclusion of that long treatise in which he wrestles with the election of Jew and Gentile alike and how they correspond and interrelate in God's eternal decrees, how does he conclude? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever." That needs to always be our response when we teach about, when we hear about, when we think about election. That we give glory to God. That we remind one another that this is the God we were made to honor. Psalm 148. That's why we were made. And that's also why He sent Christ. That we might give Him the glory that He deserves. That first of all. And along with that, for the lively comfort of His people. For the comfort of God's people. Hebrews 6 says, When God, yes, when, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs the promise of the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, God wants us to be utterly confident in His promises. He wants us to have no doubt of the salvation He has offered us. He wants us to never fear that having begun to trust in Christ, He's going to, we're going to, to be cast off. To be stolen away. To be left on the refuse pile. God wants His children to have comfort. Now if we're resting in us, if we think it's because of our decision or our wisdom or our commitment, we never have that comfort. Ever. Because how many New Year's resolutions have you broken? How many diets have you started and walked away from? How many times have you resolved to exercise or resolved to be better in some way? And how many times have you failed? There is no comfort in us. But God takes an oath by Himself because He never changes. And His oath began with His promise. Spoken before there was a person to hear the promise. That he would save eternally those whom he set apart for himself. That's election. And that's a great comfort. And yet that comfort, notice that our, our confession says, 
for the lively comfort of his people. Not just for our comfort, but for our lively comfort. In Hebrews 6, where he reminds us of the great comfort of God's choosing of us, the apostle then calls the readers to make their hope sure. He calls them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we heard Peter urging us in chapter 1 of his second letter to make our calling and our election sure. In other words, we must teach this doctrine in a way that not only comforts people but urges them to live according to that comfort. That their comfort might be lively, that it might be filled with faith, that it might be filled with sanctification, that their lives might give evidence to the fact that God has chosen and is working within them. So for both of these reasons, for God's glory and for the lively comfort of the saints, we must teach this doctrine. So that brings us to the other question. And we're not going to camp out on it long, but we need to address it. How do we receive it? How do we receive it? The first thing we need to note is the warning that we find in our canons against several illegitimate responses to election. Article 13 warns us against being lax in observing his commandments. Lax, kids, means careless, right? There can be a temptation to think either, since I'm elect, I don't have to do anything. Or, whether I'm elect or not, what I do doesn't matter. And so we become careless about how we live before God. Election was never meant to make us careless. We need to remember that. I've heard folks express this in terms of God's sovereignty, meaning that what we do doesn't matter. I can drive home the whole way after church on the wrong side of the road, and if God has willed for me to live to 90, if God has willed for my work here to continue, there won't be another car that I meet the whole way home. That is not the right response to election. That's just foolishly refusing to use the wisdom God has given to the dumbest among us, right? We are not to be lax as a response, nor are we to be carnally self-assured. That's the response of someone who says, I'm elect, therefore I can do what I want. God loves to forgive, I love to sin, we make a great team. But that again is not why God has given us this teaching of election. And when we embrace either laxity or carnal self-assurance, what we're doing is showing that we're not elect. Because those who are elect learn to stand in awe of God's grace, begin to be filled with gratitude for all that God has done, and they long for their lives to show both their gratitude and the character of God that they were meant to proclaim to a watching world. And so far from being lax or carnally self-assured, our lives are going to be utterly transformed by this teaching. A person who is either lax or carnally self-assured, says Peter in what we just read, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He's blind. He forgets who he's supposed to be. And my friends, God wants us to respond radically differently than that. Above all, he wants the truth about election to remind us of our unworthiness. God loved us so much that He chose to save us despite our ugly rebellion. 
Think about that. God knew how often and how wickedly we would sin against Him, and He chose to save us anyway. He knew how stubbornly we would cling to our sins, how often we would turn back to those old rebellions, and He chose to love us anyway. How can we know that? How can we be reminded of that and not grieve our sin? We ought to be repeating with the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When we consider election, that needs to be our first response, to humble ourselves to the dust, absolutely stunned that God would choose the likes of me. And at the same time, at the same time, we need to increasingly adore God's mercy. Paul continues there saying, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We, we ought to be overwhelmed that God would show such patience, such love, such grace toward us. Not to leave us awestruck. And seeing that, recognizing that, ought to lead us to turn our lives. That's why Peter reminds us in our scripture reading from earlier that the goal of God's promises, verse 4, is that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. God revealed that He loved us. God revealed that He sent Jesus for us, not so that we would continue to wallow in the mess of our sins, but so that we would turn from them, so that we would live a better life. You know, something that's hard for us young people, something that's hard for us to grasp sometimes, is that what God commanded in His law is always for our good. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way in the moment. I want to do something, and God seems like this cosmic spoil sport that wants to keep me from having fun. He doesn't. He wants to keep you from hurting yourself, and He wants to keep you from hurting others, right? And as we come to recognize the greatness of His grace toward us and His goodness toward us, we'll begin trusting Him to know what's best, trusting Him to know what's good for us, and we'll begin conforming ourselves to His will, revealing Him in us. That's why Peter urges us in this passage, make every effort to supplement your faith, your trust in Christ, with virtue. And what's virtue defined by? It's defined by God's law. And add to your virtue Knowledge, understanding how that law honors God and applies to your life. And add to that knowledge self-control so that you can actually take up that law, those commands in your life. And add to that self-control, steadfastness, not doing it once or twice, but every day. And add to that steadfastness, godliness. Seeking to be holy as he has ho is holy. And add to that godliness, brotherly affection. Caring for others the way God has cared for us. And to brotherly affection, love. Which is selfless brotherly affection. This doesn't happen overnight. 
And it doesn't happen if we're trying to climb a ladder and become righteous in God's sight. It happens out of gratitude for God. It happens out of gratitude for all that He has done. It happens as a heartfelt response to the one who chose us when He didn't have to. And not only should our knowledge of election, our understanding of election lead us to turn our lives, it should lead us to respond boldly, joyfully, continually to God's love. Where Paul tells Timothy about how he is the the foremost among sinners. He concludes to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does he respond that way? Because he has just been reminded of how gracious God has been to deliver him. How gracious God has been to send Christ for the likes of him. Every time we study these truths, every time we delve into this word and we're reminded how God chose me, called me, sent His Son for me, we ought to be falling to our knees singing His praises. We ought to be walking out those doors reminding others, look at what God has done for the likes of us. And we ought to be eager to tell our neighbors, hey, I know your life's a mess. You know what? Your life is no more, your heart is no more a mess than mine is. And the only reason my life is not such a mess is because God has been at work there. If you'd like to know more, I'm here to tell you the reason for the hope within me. And yes, some people are going to look at you and mock you and call you a holy roller and want nothing to do with you. That's fine. But others are going to not know what to do and what to say. And then in a couple days, they're going to come back and say, maybe I do want to hear something about that because my life really is a wreck. And I would really like to have a life that looks a little more like yours. They're not going to do that if we're proud and self-assured. They're not going to do that if our lives are no different than theirs. But if they see the difference that Christ is making, if they see that daily we're turning our lives around, if they see that we are overwhelmed with love and gratitude to God, they're going to want to know why. And God is going to use us in our weakness not to teach them about all the doctrines, but to introduce them to Christ. And we will become part of the story of how God saved that elect child, that son or daughter of the Lord, as He ordained from the start. Our God calls us as His church to proclaim the reality of election. He calls us to proclaim it properly, which is to say we teach it in the church among the people of God. We proclaim it passionately with our eyes upon His grace and we proclaim it aiming for the twofold goal of glorifying God and of bringing a lively comfort to the people of God. And having proclaimed that truth, God wants us to respond aright. Recognizing humbly the darkness of our sin recognizing gratefully the light of God's grace, turning our lives in response and expressing boldly our love and our gratitude toward God. There are things that should not be spoken and times in which we should not speak. But among the people of God, we must proclaim boldly the truth of these 
glorious, of this glorious decree God has made and all that flows from it. And may God be glorified through us in response. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed to us, your children, the glorious truth of election. We pray that you would indeed use it to bring us comfort and to fill us with resolve to show you our thanks. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with such awe and wonder and gratitude that you have chosen us, that we would be unstoppable in telling others what you have done. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.